It's good seeing you. What a joy to be gathered together. Donna and I had a, a great weekend last weekend, just uh, away, relaxing, staying with some friends and uh, hanging out. Um, and we did attend church over there, but I was definitely missing being here with you uh, during that time. So um, what a joy to be back gathered with God's people. Uh, we're in the book of Jonah, so I know we took a two-week break, but if you would open your Bible to Jonah chapter 3, if you have that with you, uh, we will have it on the screen. Uh, we are working with new software, which I like. Do you like the new software for the, the words? You notice the difference up there? That's pretty cool. Uh, I like that, but of course, we give them a little grace today if they happen to have a glitch or two, so that can happen when they're doing new things. So, uh, But I'll be reading um, Jonah 3 over the course of the sermon um, from the New International Version. Uh, but as we begin, if you would, we're going to read the first uh, four verses together to start. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would show us what we are to take away from this book, that you would help us to see why this book is in our Bible, what you've what purpose you've given it to us for. Speak to us afresh these words in our hearing in a way that we can understand. Amen. Amen. Now we've had those couple of weeks off, so I want to take a moment and kind of back up and do an overview, uh, not of the story of the book, but of the theme of, of this book. From, really, this is from the first message, just to remind us of some of these things. And really, these themes come loud and clear in chapters 3 and 4, so this week and next week as we look at those. But first, from the perspective of Jonah, the Jonah within the story, if Jonah wrote the story later as we have it, fine, but I'm not talking about him as the author later writing, I'm talking about his perspective during the events as they're happening. Whoever's writing it later, whether it was passed down orally and somebody put it on you know, papyrus or, or how that happened, When they are telling the story, there's a perspective that the character Jonah has in the book. And that perspective of Jonah is about the, this book from his perspective is about the absurdity of God's compassion. It's about the absurdity of God's compassion. Now, from the Lord's perspective in the book, it's about his people's preoccupation with and misconception of justice. It's about his people's preoccupation with and misconception of justice. Now, we'll see that part even more so next week as we look at chapter 4. This week, we we kind of see the absurdity of God's compassion from Jonah's perspective a bit more. But what we learn from this book, as we take away as those two things are coming out, what we learn is that God's compassion seems absurd to those who are preoccupied with justice. God's compassion seems seems absurd to those who are preoccupied with justice. Or more simply, we could put it this way, it's about the strangeness of God's ways in the world. Because truly His ways are foolish to us, and we do not understand them. Like Jonah, we are often 
aghast at the absurdity of God's compassion, or at least what appears to us to be that, because we insist on justice, or at least our version of justice. Justice is something we all define from our vantage point. Truth be told, none of us want justice for ourselves. No, we wouldn't want that. We want mercy for ourselves. But for others, well, you know, the undeserving. For the undeserving, we want justice. You know, the undeserving poor, the undeserving wicked. You see, that language of deserving and undeserving makes it sound justified. Like, it's okay to do that because, well, they're undeserving. Like, are we familiar with the gospel? (laughs) We are undeserving of God's mercy. And our life should reflect that that attitude has become our attitude. So we should eradicate language of deserving and undeserving from how we speak of those in need. Jonah didn't want God to have compassion on the undeserving Assyrians. And so he ends up in the sea with seaweed wrapped around his head just as his sense of justice had him all tied up in knots. What we learn in this book, as James uh, Bruckner uh, puts it in the NIV application commentary on Jonah, he says, quote, God's compassion and clemency were not weaknesses in God's justice, but were better justice than human justice. Were better justice than human justice. And that's something that comes loud and clear through this book. Now, as we look more toward chapter 3, specifically, the last line in chapter 2, or Jonah's psalm in chapter 2, so it's not the last line, because the last line, the fish vomits him out onto land, but but the line right before that, in verse 9, I believe it is, that last line in his psalm is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Chapter 3 is going to demonstrate that fact well. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Between Tarshish in chapter 1, because remember Jonah hears the same word in chapter 1 to go to, to Nineveh and to preach, but he heads to Tarshish, which is west. In all probability, it's the farthest reaches of the empire, the known world at that time. Now, in chapter 3, he heads east, the direction he was supposed to go to begin with. And so in this book, the gospel has been preached to the ends of the earth. Isn't that amazing? At least in its initial form, its, its initial form, it's obviously not the full gospel as we know it, but it has gone to the ends of the earth. So it's a picture of what we are accomplishing in our mission today as the church. I, as, I, as I mentioned in the first message, I was tempted to title this series Jonah the Comic Prophet. Uh, Because honestly, (laughs) there are so many points at which we should be laughing as we're reading this. We don't because we don't get all the jokes and we don't get the the things that are funny. So I've tried to point some of them out as as we are going along. Uh, But everything from his name and his father's name is humorous because he's the exact opposite. You know, he's, he's not the innocent dove son of faithfulness. He's quite the opposite of that in every respect as we go through the book. But the other reason why that, that, that is so, that he's the comic prophet, is because there's a ton of hyperbole and exaggeration to make its point. 
Everything in this book is gadol, which is great in English. Everything is gadol this and gadol that. It's great, it's great, it's great. Everything's great. It's a great city. It's a great wind. It's a great storm. The sailors greatly feared the storm and then greatly feared the Lord, Yahweh. It's a great fish, such a great city that it would take three days to walk across it, never mind how big that would make it. God sparing Nineveh was exceedingly great, an exceedingly great evil to Jonah, and the tree that God gave to provide him shade gave him exceedingly great joy. You can see that great is a, a big theme. In today's text, Jonah preaches a five-word sermon in Hebrew. It's five words, seven, I think, in English, which results in repentance more immediate and evident than any other place in the entire Bible. And everything in this book is not only great, but their repentance is especially great, though it's not actually described with Gadol. It is clearly described as great. It is the greatest repentance in the entire Bible. Now you may recall that in chapter 1, because of Jonah's disobedience, his resistance to God's will, that everything for him began a downward trajectory. And it kept going down, 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 until he was in the depth of the sea, in the belly of a fish, right? And so, that's where chapter 1 ends, and well, in the middle of chapter 2, that's where Jonah is. But in chapter 3, the theme changes. Again, Bruckner suggests that instead of down being the thematic word, in chapter 3, the theme is upside down. Everything is either turned upside down or turned around in this chapter. So we're going to explore our text under three headings today. First, Jonah's repentance. Second, Nineveh's repentance. And third, God's repentance. Jonah's repentance, Nineveh's repentance, and God's repentance. So let's look under that first heading Jonah's repentance. Uh, And let's read verse 1 and 2 again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. A second time. After Jonah's death and resurrection in the belly of a great fish, chapter 3 begins right where the book began in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Everything in this book began with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, and everything in his new birth, his resurrection life, out of the belly of that fish, begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Everything we're going to read of the Ninevites' repentance in this chapter began with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. And this word tells him to go now to the great city, Nineveh, and then it gives a message to give them. This time, he gets up and goes. Not the other direction, but toward Nineveh. And then we read in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You ever listen to those, like, if I've taken a nap, sometimes I'll flip on Sounds of Nature. And you've got the raindrops in the forest, that's always a good one. But the other one, my favorite, is the ocean waves crashing against the shore just over and over. So relaxing, isn't it? I imagine as Jonah's on shore and he starts heading toward Nineveh, he he hears a soundtrack in the back of the ocean, but it's probably not quite as peaceful to him. You know, it's more like, da-dun, (laughs) da-dun, Dun, 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 you know, but the closer he gets to Nineveh, 
the quieter that sound becomes. And the less eh, into it, let's say, he is. I mean, he, when he got out of that fish, he was ready to obey God, right? Okay, salvation belongs to you, not my, not my deal. Now he's like, yeah, you know, yeah, that's right, salvation. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll preach. It's not quite so loud. Like those times when something happens that wakes you up to your need to repent. But as the days go by, the sense of danger ebbs and you lapse back into your old patterns of thinking and living. You familiar with that? Or like the, a conflict that clues a husband into the fact that he needs to get back into the habit of getting a sitter and taking his wife out regularly and spending time together. But the further away you get from the conflict, the more expensive the babysitter sounds. And I mean, it's just not quite so urgent anymore. Often in Scripture, we're given the word of the Lord to the prophet. And then for emphasis, the word of the Lord is repeated and delivered to the people. And occasionally in those moments, you see a difference between what the word of the Lord said to the prophet and exactly what they delivered to the people. You'll see some variation. In the simplest of ways, you were all familiar with this one. You remember the command to Adam in the Garden of Eden, you shall not uh, eat from the tree that is in the center of the garden. And then, of course, Eve in repeating it, you shall not eat or touch that tree. She added the and touch. Now, we can debate whether there's any significance in that distinction or not, but the fact that it is there is worth noting and paying attention to, whatever it might mean. Well, with Jonah, we don't get the privilege of comparing what the Lord said to him with what he delivered because we're just not given what the Lord said to him exactly. But then he goes and he proclaims a five-word sermon. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that what the Lord told him to tell Nineveh included a few more than five words. I'm just guessing that it probably had a few other things in there. But given what we read in chapter 4 next week, we know that Jonah's not really interested in their repentance, so he leaves out anything that might spur them on to such repentance. I mean, for instance, there's no mention of God in his sermon. That might be a little detail that one would want to include when preaching a sermon. There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of even why they are going to be overthrown. Like, you know, what should they repent of, for instance, if that were even a thing? It's just 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Simple as that. It's a half-hearted proclamation to them. Now, some, in trying to kind of... uh, work with the fact that the city was a three days journey, which would mean that it was 45 miles wide, which of course would be impossible. It wasn't that, but they've said, no, that has to do with how long it would take Jonah to proclaim the message to everybody in the city. And maybe that's true. So if so, he certainly didn't do that. He goes out, says it one time, one day's journey in, he's done. He goes to the edge of the city, hoping to see them destroyed and they don't get destroyed. But remember, salvation belongs to the Lord. So whatever he says is enough because it's not contingent upon the efficacy of his preaching. It's contingent upon the Lord. Amen? Which I'm very grateful for as a preacher. <laughs> very, very grateful for. If, if, if the life of this church depended upon me as a preacher, we'd be in real trouble. Real trouble. 
But it's the Lord. Thanks be to God. But who are these objects of God's compassion in this chapter? Which we read, when we get to verse 10, we discover it is His compassion. We don't yet know that, maybe at this point, but clearly we will find that it is His compassion. But who are these objects? Well, remember, we, again, week one, the Ninevites were a people most deserving of God's wrath, the most you could ever imagine that anyone would deserve God's wrath, the most ruthless of adversaries. Um, and, and not only could they end Israel... As they knew it, they in fact, shortly after the events of this book, did end the existence of Israel, the northern ten kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, for all history. They destroyed it, and it would never be revived again. That doesn't mean they killed every person that was in Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. It means that they were all taken captive and lost their identity completely and were never known of again. Their lives were just you know, connected genetically to every other Gentile that was around them, and there was no distinction between them, no religion that was followed. Who are the Ninevites in your life? Your political enemies? I mean, the the Ninevites were Jonah's political enemies. Okay? Clearly his political enemies. Who are the people that you think threaten your comfort, your safety, life as you know it? The people for whom you are slow to show compassion because they don't deserve it. Who are those people? Maybe because you think somehow they might be the death of you, as the Assyrians were for Israel. To be sure, had Jonah succeeded, listen, had Jonah succeeded in avoiding his mission to Nineveh, like he wanted to, had he succeeded in avoiding his mission to Nineveh, Nineveh would have been destroyed and Israel would have been spared. But instead, God puts him in the belly of a fish, gets him out of that fish and sends him to Nineveh against his will, so to speak. And the very mission itself sent Jonah and all Israel to the cross, if you will, to their death for the rescue of a generation of Ninevites? In a human economy, this makes no sense. If we get the book, we don't question Jonah's sanity. We we agree with Jonah and question God's sanity. Because that's just how absurd it seems. You see, Jonah's mission is a lot like our mission as the church. It's a path to the cross where we die to ourselves in order that others might have life. And listen, when I talk about these things that we fear about our enemies of various kinds, I am not suggesting that such fears are never warranted. I am suggesting that they do not trump God's mission for His people to the undeserving world. Yes, even when the undeserving world is our enemies. To be sure, God's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our own. But let's go back to Jonah's message. We talked about what was missing from the message, but what is actually there? Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Five words announcing judgment, presumably by God, but that's not even stated. It's a bit like standing on a street corner and just shouting, you're all going to hell. Not exactly what I would think of as effective evangelism. You know, 
They say it several times, you're all going to hell, you're all going to hell, you're all going to hell. I mean, like, it doesn't make it better. But there's a foreshadowing here of another possibility. The Hebrew word for overthrown or destroyed has a range of meaning. So here's kind of the semantic range. Turned over, turned around, turned back, overthrown, destroyed. (laughs) Well, Jonah, of course, intended one of those, and God apparently intended the other. Turned around, turned over, changed completely, you might say. You see, they are going to be completely turned upside down, as we'll see in a moment. Much to Jonah's chagrin. So Jonah's repentance is absurd because of how minimal it is. But let's take a look at Nineveh's, the Ninevites' repentance. Um, let's look there, starting in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. Now, what does it mean to believe God? Well, let's read on and see. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Wow. You mean that came from the sermon we read? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. The faith demonstrated by the Ninevites is a model for the church. After telling us the Ninevites believe God, it describes what faith looks like. And faith, as it turns out, looks a lot like repentance. (laughs) Since the late 2nd or early 3rd century A.D., on Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement, the account of Nineveh's repentance as a model of true repentance, along with Isaiah 58's account of true fasting, uh, have been read in the synagogue in the afternoon service of the Day of Atonement. I mean, the Ninevites' repentance is held up as the perfect repentance. Why? Because you can never find Israel repenting that well. It's amazing that this would find its way into our Bibles. It's about the Ninevites, the very enemies of the people of God. In fact, the the Ninevites' repentance is so thorough, it is absurd... But that, of course, matches it up with God's compassion. Let's look at the components of this repentance. It begins from the people, not merely an order from the king. It was not like the king heard the word. No, the people heard the word, and they repented, and they began to fast, and suddenly then the king gets word of what's going on. Now, he could have come and squashed it and said, No way, that's stupid. I'm not having some... Uh, Israelite come in here and tell me from their God, yada, yada. He could have done any of that, but he didn't. We don't know what motivated him other than salvation belongs to the Lord. That's all we know. All the people were involved. Now, their fast was most certainly of food only. It doesn't mention drink, and so any fast of that day would have been a food fast, not a a drink fast. But when it reaches the king, we get a picture of what, what would be really absolutely perfect repentance 
virtually unachievable in any human form in its perfection. The king's repentance. First, notice there are four parts of his repentance. There's an upside-down movement in these four parts of his repentance. First, he rises. He, he gets up from his throne, his glory seat, if you will. Second, he unclothes himself, removing his glory, his royal robes. Third, he clothes himself, but this time with the inglorious, the sackcloth. I mean, sackcloth is pretty simple. You know what sackcloth is? It's the cloth which you make sacks from. And not really very good sacks, just sacks that will hold, you know, grain. But if you turned it into flour, it would all come out because there's holes everywhere. It's like very unflattering, okay? It's like the worst thing you could put on. Sackcloth. Burlap would be slightly nicer. Finally, he lowers himself. So he rose up from his throne, but now he lowers himself sitting down, but not on a throne, but in the dust, or more likely, ashes. Depending on which translation you're reading, and and could go either way, but more likely, I think, ashes. I'm, I'm reminded of Christ, though, who got off his heavenly throne, let go of his heavenly glory, clothed himself in human flesh, and lived in poverty in the dust of the earth, the true king. Amen? I mean, this is a foreshadowing of Christ, and it's a Ninevite king. Unnamed, albeit, but a Ninevite king. Then, the king issues a decree. There are three things to note in this decree. First, he intensifies and broadens the fast. He intensifies and broadens the fast. Not only people, but their livestock, their herds and flocks. Not, they, they will not taste anything, neither eating nor drinking. Now, the, again, the people had only fasted food, but now it's food and drink, and, oh, it's going to include all your herds and flocks, too. All your cattle, all your, your livestock, probably the best word there for animals, livestock. Now, it's, it's interesting that taste is specified first. You will not taste, neither... People nor animals will taste anything. Now, that's interesting. Uh, Of course, if you're not eating or drinking, then you're not tasting anything, right? I mean, that kind of goes with it. Uh, So why specify taste? Well, I think Philip Carey offers this, and I think it's right. Taste is a basic mode of the wisdom of the body. See, you taste things to discern whether they're good or bad, good or evil. Do I want to eat that or don't I want to eat that? You know, it's like kids growing up. Uh, Well, you have to taste it. Of course, you know the minute they taste it, they're going to go, bah! you know, not even time for it to get to their brain, but it's okay. I mean, they've determined they're not going to like it. But over time, we develop a, a, a palate, our tastes change, and, and, and so we, we, we decide we can eat some more things. But this good and bad, uh, and so to taste nothing is to lay aside this wisdom, making ourselves helpless and undiscerning, and thus putting ourselves at the mercy of someone else who must judge for us, what promotes our life. We think food promotes our life, but we're laying that aside to say, God, you tell me what promotes my life. It is to give up, uh, Kerry goes on to say, the taste of good things that sustain us in being. Because we seek a more fundamental ground of our being, and we are afraid that by our manifold bad judgment, we have made ourselves enemies of our being, of it. This is the body's participation in the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. And that's from the Brazos Theological Commentary on Jonah. 
In other words, to give up tasting is to give up our right to discern good from bad and to acknowledge that God has that right. It's ultimately going right back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve decided that they would determine what was good and evil. They would pursue the knowledge of good and evil and not leave that in God's hands. This is, at its core, true repentance. But imagine how noisy the city became with all the animals wailing for food and drink. I mean, you, you get some livestock. You get some herds and flocks. And, and you just don't feed them. Don't give them any water. Don't give them anything to drink. Don't give them any food. And see how noisy things get. It's going to be absurd. They're going to be wailing and moaning and groaning and, I mean, bowing everywhere. I mean, it's just it's going to be awful. And the wealthier you are, the louder it will be. Because you have more of all of those. You see, we might wonder what the animals needed to repent of. And the truth is, they didn't need to repent of anything. The people did. But people, livestock, to include herds and flocks, were the measure of economics in that day. And so if they were going to repent, it had to affect them down to the economics. If repentance doesn't get into our pocketbook, it hasn't been real. Just the truth of it. Today, we would have to have the stock market and cryptocurrency fast, which apparently they are right now. Um, Along with uh, cattle and corn futures. We'd have to shut down drilling oil, which, believe me, that'll create a whole noise of its own if we do that, when we do that. You see, it's a comic scene to picture the animals involved in this religious event. It's a way of expressing their repentance. You see, the the Ninevites, their violence was fueled by greed for people and livestock. That's what the loot was from their wars. That's why they destroyed the people was to take those things and then to take the rest of the people and make them slaves to enrich them. So their repentance, if it hadn't involved their economics, it would not have been real. The same is true for us. What difference has our repentance made in our life? Has it affected us right down to our economics, to our pocketbook, to how we view stuff? And note, secondly, that both people and animals are to be covered in sackcloth. Again, I mean, it's weird enough that we make sweaters for our dogs. I mean, sorry, for please please take no offense. (laughs) They kind of have a natural one, I'm just saying, but... But they were making not just like sweater, these weren't cute, this sackcloth for their animals. So not only am I not eating, not only am I not feeding my animals so there's noise everywhere, but I'm going to go about making some clothes for them that are very unattractive and wearing them myself, yes, as well. And then third thing to notice about this fast or this decree from the, from the king is all the people are to call urgently upon God and give up their evil ways and their violence. <clears throat> Repentance is never only about our relationship to God. Let me say that again. Repentance is never only about our relationship to God. That would be false repentance. Repentance must include how we treat others. It must include how we treat others. Surely, not everyone in the city had been violent. I mean, the the nation had been violent, the armies had been violent, but surely not everyone in the city had been violent. 
But their whole economy was propped up by a violent system, so everyone benefited from the violence. All, therefore, had to participate in the repentance. I've noticed that evangelicals seem to have a hard time with this way of thinking. But evangelicals tend to think, often, at least many, if I didn't specifically cause the act, then I'm not responsible. But that just doesn't fly in the Bible. Ever. <laughs> Ever. If we somehow, we see, not only is sin acts of commission, but sins are acts of omission. And when we passively allow bad deeds done to others to benefit us without doing anything about it, we're just as guilty as those who did it. I'm starting to meddle. Better get back to preaching. You know. So finally, note the, the king's posture toward God. Notice his posture toward God. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's in verse 9. You see, for repentance to be genuine, it cannot demand forgiveness. I, I can't say to somebody that I've wronged, well, I've repented, you have to forgive me. No, they don't. Not if it's forgiveness. If they owe it to you, then it's not forgiveness. It's owed. The essence of repentance is the acknowledgement of guilt and the need for mercy. This king is acknowledging that God's wrath was deserved upon them. Now, and I'm not talking about when people joke about this. You know, that's fine, whatever. But it's not uncommon to hear Christians when they are supposedly repenting for their sins, to actually say to others, you have to forgive me or God commands you to forgive me. And, and, and here's the deal. He may command someone to forgive you, but you may not command somebody to forgive you. God has the right to tell someone they must forgive you. You do not have the right to tell someone they must forgive you. And that's an important distinction. God can require it, but the offender cannot. The NIV, with their wording, God may yet relent, and with compassion, they're trying to capture the essence of the original. We'll talk about that in this third, under the third heading briefly. Um, and it's missed in a lot of translations, so I like that translation. The, the, king's hope, <clears throat> the king's hope is in God, not Jonah or anyone else. Who knows? Maybe God. God may yet relent. You know. He doesn't say, who knows, maybe the people of Israel will have mercy on us and give us compassion. It would have been a cold day in hell before they would have uh, been forgiven in that scenario. What about us and our enemies? Sure, who knows, maybe God will have compassion on them, but will His people have compassion on them? Well, the Ninevites' absurd repentance is matched only by God's absurd compassion. So let's look under our third heading, God's repentance. And by the way, I'm, you might put quotation marks around repentance. Um, you'll see why in a moment. But verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. Now, this verse is significant in Jonah. Uh, salvation belongs to the Lord in chapter 2. Significant in Jonah. This verse, significant in Jonah, of course, the first couple of verses of chapter 4. These, you know, that's where you get the core of the story. But God relents and He doesn't bring on them the destruction He had threatened. 
This phrase, God's repentance, I use that a bit tongue-in-cheek because we read that in some translations of the Bible, and even relented kind of brings us there. And it confuses people when they read their Bible that God somehow repented. Here's a couple of older translations that, that frame the discussion. King James Version. God repented of the evil that He had said He would do unto them, and He did, and he did it not. Uh, the RSV, or Revised Standard Version, said, uh, says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So there's two stumbling blocks in these verses that we have to work around, in, in a sense, so we have to understand. First, How can God repent since he does not sin? And second, did God say that he was going to do evil? I mean, in other words, would God have done evil? So we're going to discuss these in reverse order. God had said he would do evil. We're going to start start there. The truth is that the text does not say that uh, God had said that he would do evil to them. It says that he had said that he would do raw to them. Well, raw is not a word you're familiar with because it's Hebrew. But my point is this. This is when we have to always be reminded that we're reading a, a, an English word that may not have the full range of meaning that the Hebrew word had. And it can make a difference in how we understand things. Raw can mean everything from unpleasant to wicked. Whereas we have several words we might use to distinguish between them, they would use this word for a whole range of meanings and which context determined how you would understand it. How many of your children, for instance, when you discipline them for good, maybe taking away a privilege that they have or however how it is, ask you why you're being so mean? Parents, ever had your children ask you why you're being so mean? Like, I don't know if you're a parent yet until that's happened. I mean, you know, or they're not talking yet, one of the two. Why are you being so mean? You know. Um... Of course, you're not being mean, but your severity is so unpleasant that it feels to them like you're being mean. This allows, though, for a nice play on words, this use of raw. They they repented of their evil, raw, so God repented of his severity, raw. Um, But what about God's repentance? I mean, to say that God repented implies that he had done something wrong. Well, there's two ways to approach this. Um, Both have their merit. First, since God knows all things, He never actually intended to destroy them, but to forgive them. So we we know that God never intended to do any of the bad things that it says He intended to do, because He intended to forgive them. That's apparently what Jonah thought. That was his perspective in chapter 4. I mean, for instance, surely when the Bible says in, in Lamentations that God's mercies are new every morning... Well, it's not like God is surprised, like, oh, look at that, I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, they're new to us, they're not like some surprise to Him. And, and so we, we, we understand that God knows the end from the beginning. On a human level, if this is our only explanation, though, it can lead to a number of problems. If we just say, well, God knows everything, so He never... I mean, the Bible gives us these stories in a way that God intends to do this, then He relents after their repentance. Why? Because it teaches us how we have to engage with God. And if we don't see it that way, we, it can lead to a number of problems, not the least of which is a guessing game about what God will and will not do. As if He's already determined to forgive, so do I really need to repent? And we get into some real danger when we start thinking that way. 
It's better to understand the biblical story as it is given, even if everything we know about God is in some sense only a representation of what we would otherwise not comprehend. I mean, if God told us everything about himself, it would be, first off, wouldn't even be in a human language, so we wouldn't get it. <laughs> we just wouldn't get it. He has to condescend to use our language, and then he has to use images and, and ideas that we can comprehend. seems to be Augustine's approach in the city of God where he says, quote, The anger of God is not a disturbance of his mind. It is the judgment by which he imposes punishment on sin. For unlike human beings, God does not regret or repent of anything he does. His view is absolute, uh, of absolutely everything is fixed, just as his foreknowledge is certain. But if the Bible did not use words like these, it couldn't communicate so plainly to all the kinds of people it wants to reach, frightening the proud, stirring up the lazy, encouraging those who seek, and feeding those who, under, who understand. It couldn't do any of this if it did not first bend down, as it were, and descend to those who are cast down. So, first off, we can understand it by understanding God's knowledge compared to our knowledge, but secondly, it's a language issue again. The Bible does not say that God repented or even relented. It says that he nahamed. <laughs> That's adding an English ending to a Hebrew word, so that doesn't really work. But he nahamed. That's what he did. But that doesn't mean anything to us, of course, but it did to them. And that word can mean to repent. It can mean to regret something, to relent, to change one's mind, as the NR, a New Revised Standard Version says. But it can also mean to be moved with pity or have compassion. To avenge oneself on the one hand and to comfort oneself on the other. It's got a really broad range of meaning and a lot of them are quite opposite one from the other in how we understand them. In other words, and I think Bruckner, he, he, he's right, he puts it this way. When God is the subject of Naham, it is best translated as had compassion or relented. The basic meaning of the Hebrew word is have compassion or feel sorrow. Now listen, when people feel sorrow, the context of sin often warrants the translation repent. In other words, I'm sorry for these evil things. So that's repentance. When God feels sorrow, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of the quote here just a little bit, uh, but you can look down in the quote, when God feels sorrow, however, the word cannot mean repent since God does not sin. See, God's inclination is always compassion and pity. So when he's moved within him, that's what he's moved with, is compassion and pity. There's another word used in this chapter, which is shuv. Looks like sub there, but it's shuv. And, and, and that's a turning around. It's kind of the idea we have with repentance generally, changing our ways, turning around. Um, so God repenting is, and the NIV tries to capture this with relent and having compassion. They kind of pull the two together. It's, it's God being moved with compassion at their repentance and, and therefore giving them mercy instead of judgment. I think Jonah 3.10 helps us with what is now a modern controversy, but was a historic ancient uh, heresy in the church, the Marcionite uh, heresy. Um, Marcion was a heretic that claimed that the God of the Old Testament was radically different than the God of the New so that we could ignore the Old Testament. A lot of pulpits ignore the Old Testament today. A lot of preachers ignore the Old Testament today. 
He argued that the Old Testament God was angry and punitive and nasty with no redeeming grace. But not so in Jonah or in so many other places, to be perfectly honest with you. Oftentimes in Scripture, God is more merciful than the humans uh, involved in the story. We see that regularly, and this would be one of those cases. The Ninevites' absurd repentance is only outdone by God's absurd compassion. Now, again, I'm using absurd from a human vantage point. It makes no sense to us. There's nothing absurd about it in the divine economy. Indeed. Well, remember that Jonah is like us. Like Jonah, when we get involved in bringing God's compassion to the so-called undeserving, we will sometimes get tied up in our sense of justice. Who are the Ninevites that threaten God's people today? Who are the people that we fear? Might it be our political enemies? How does our repentance compare to that of the Ninevites? Have we truly turned around and repented right down to our economics, to our very being, to what sustains our life? Had the Israelites repented like the Ninevites did, surely they would have never been exiled and the Assyrians would have never conquered them. We know that from Scripture. But they've never, they'd never repented like this. True repentance, which changes our relationship to God and others, surely matters to God as much today as it ever has. With the cross, he didn't suddenly stop caring about true repentance. Are we willing to own even our indirect participation in things that we've benefited from that were evil? as the Ninevites were in their context. And then I want to reflect just back as we close on on that quote we had at the very beginning. God's compassion and clemency were not weaknesses in God's justice, but were better justice than human justice. And that, at the end of the day, is one of the key messages we would pull away from this book. May the Lord open our eyes to see things as He sees them and to embrace the path to the cross that we might have the life that is truly life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to those people that in our life we think of, whether openly or subconsciously as our enemy, that we fear, that we worry about, and help us to see our mission to bring them your compassion and mercy. And let that affect how we do all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.